for Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Thank you for tuning in once again and for supporting our podcast. Steve, how are you keeping? Very well, thank you, Russell. And I hope listeners enjoyed some of our recent tips about how we can scaffold effectively in lessons. And actually, today's episode builds on these ideas really nicely as we'll be exploring some more practical advice for the classroom, including how we choose to plan and deliver our lessons, as well as advice around managing our workload. That's right, Steve. We're fortunate to be joined by Aidan Severs today. A popular educational blogger for many years under the name That Boy Can Teach, Aidan is an experienced teacher and senior leader who has a real passion for the profession. His desire to support leaders and teachers more widely has recently seen him step into a new consultancy role, which we'll hear some more about in a moment. Aidan, a very warm welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast. Thank you for having me. I don't know if fortunate's the word, but yeah, I'm <laughs> glad to be here. I feel like I'm the fortunate one, to be honest. Two kinds. No, Aidan, um, let, let's hear some more about your journey in education then. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what gets you fired up to do the work that you do in schools? So my career started, I guess, when a few family friends said, you're good with kids, you should go into teaching it. At that time, you know, you're at sixth form and you, you don't always really know what you want to do with your life. And when someone says something like that, well, I kind of listen. So I applied to go on this teaching course a four-year course with art and the QTS and I did that that was in Lancaster St Martin's College and thankfully a I liked it and b I was okay at it I definitely wasn't the best back then I've had students since who blow me out the water in terms of their teaching at that career stage I came back home after that which is Bradford And I started working in a school in the Bradford area. I actually applied for a year two job because my training had been in year one and two. But then they gave me a year three job and I just carried on up the school from there, really. Did year three for a few years, year five, year four when I moved to my second school and was foolish enough to then say, I kind of really need to complete the key stage two set and I need to do year six. And I asked to go into year six and I definitely know some of your listeners will have done the Mm. same. Did a couple of years there. Then I got an assistant headship at a school in the very centre of Bradford in Manningham that was in special measures, was about to be uh, become a part of an academy chain in Bradford got the job there, assistant head, year six teacher, maths lead. And that was the start really for me of this point that you've made about being fired up. Mm. It was going into that situation where there was such an incredible need, such a lot of change was needed that I had to just get into this thing, this teaching thing. Mm. You know, I was a leader as well had these new responsibilities and I just wanted to make a really good go of it. I felt the school deserved it. The children deserved it. The area deserved it. I had put myself in this position. I felt like I deserved to do a good job for myself as well. And it just got me into all this kind of research stuff that I think we'll touch on later. Yeah. Being part of the Academy Trust there, which is Dixon's gave me a lot of experience there because they had the research school After three years there, I think, I took a role within the trust, which was primary lead practitioner. So I worked across our primaries on various different projects in each school, really. And it kind of gave me a taste for what I'm doing now. Through that, 
I ended up actually working two days a week at another primary school. It was actually an all-through school in the trust uh, because the head had left. The deputy had stepped into the head role and they needed some extra capacity. They didn't recruit a deputy at that point. At the end of that year, they did recruit a deputy and that deputy was me. And then I spent three years into the fourth year working at that school throughout the pandemic. The thing that really drew me to that school, or there were two things, one that it was a through school and I wanted to see how that works in terms of your kids moving on, just going through those double doors and being in year seven. The second thing that drew me was the fact that it didn't have a year five and six yet. So it was growing year on year. And I just got the chance to set up a key stage two base from scratch. That was really exciting. Mm. And I guess actually there's a third thing with that school was just that they did things a little bit differently. So for example, one of their kind of key artifacts was to have continuous provision throughout the school, right up to year six. That challenge kind of Mm. uh, drew me in as well because I wanted to see, can this actually work? Can we make this happen? So yeah, I took that job there and spent three years doing that until stopped at Christmas to do my new role, which is a self-employed educational consultant. And I've been doing that for two weeks. So that's excellent. Congratulations on the new role. And you've got so much to offer the profession. I'm really excited to see see what you're going to be up to. Now, today, Aidan, we're going to be looking at this idea of effective and efficient teaching. What we mean by this is the things that are going to make a real difference to children, but also be manageable to teachers. And I know that's a big thing for you. I'm really pleased to be talking about that because my year's as a full-time classroom teacher, was somewhat tarnished by a very unsustainable workload. I don't know that I could have stayed in those roles for uh, many more years before moving into leadership because I had to do a lot of things that I think didn't really make a lot of difference to the children, a lot of admin tasks and so on. And I know for you, I've seen you blog about it extensively, well-being is a really big strand of your work. So I want to start with that point. So why do you think well-being is so important and how do you think leaders go about creating a a kind of a healthy school climate for their staff? Yeah, I think well-being is important for several reasons. The wider picture is we need our staff to be well in order for them to do their jobs and their jobs are to keep our children well, first and foremost, to keep our children safe but also to provide that education as well. And it's just not going to happen in the best way possible if staff are not well. People are people, first and foremost. We care for these people. We have relationships with these people. And of course, we want them to be well. There's a bit of a personal reason for why I have such an emphasis on it as well. My dad took early retirement when I was a teenager due to kind of work-related stress um, and depression, And so there's always been this thing in the back of my mind, really, that I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to see that happening to other people around me. And so it's got to be at the heart of everything we do. It's just not fair on people to let them go that way. That's so true. I'm sitting there listening. I'm thinking it always becomes an annoyance when you hear that well-being could be seen as a bolt-on because actually it's it's the DNA that runs within and through your school. So... I always feel how fortunate I was that I lived at home in my early career as a teacher. Having left uh, the profession of being a a lawyer to go into teaching, I still lived at home with my parents. 
I mean, just that took the slight edge off of the workload that yeah. you're coming home to to mark the 60 or 90 books a night that you could just crack on with it. It's such a different way of living, but it's not right, but it's something that you just had to get through at the time. And it's great that we got people and concepts that are really addressing this. And one thing that we've seen you blog about as well, Aidan, is the way that we choose to plan a sequence of lessons. Because if I can imagine that I've got a term of science or history lessons to plan, I need to be thinking, how can this be more efficient? How would you add to that? What's your view on how we can make that more efficient? Yeah, so I do think, and I've come to think this more and more, that planning is at the heart of well-being for staff. Mm. I think if we can get it right at the planning stage, then we have got a much better chance of having teachers who are not killing themselves to do this job. In one of my previous schools, the head decided that we would give extra PPA time. So we, she timetabled it, she got cover and so on, so that she, she actually made it so that all of a phase, so years five and six, years three and four, uh, could plan together in one room for an extended period of time. And I think... You know, going back to your, your question before, how do leaders create a healthy mm. school climate? I do think it all starts with the leaders and I do think it starts with what they can afford to give staff. So planning time, first and foremost, is going to solve not only the, the well-being issues, mm. but also to start getting those effective outcomes as well. We can probably all think of the time when we went into PPA, we got our maths nailed, we got our English nailed, and then we kind of had a little look <laughs> at everything else. And it's that little look at everything else that if we had a bit more time, we would be able to plan a lot more effectively, deliver lessons that were a lot more effective. And the research shows that one of the things that improves staff wellbeing is seeing the improvement the students make yeah so in terms of planning first of all you need a decent amount of time to do it second of all if you can do it with someone else i know that's not possible for everyone then that is you know that's going to save you time because you you're sharing you're pooling your ideas sharing out who's making the resources and so on but in terms of planning a sequence I tend to shy away from the word lessons because I think every time we mention a lesson, we're kind of drawn back into this um, way of thinking that believes learning happens in these little chunks of time that kind of neatly stick together on a timetable. Whereas actually it's not like that at all. And I think if we're thinking of lessons, say it's a, a subject where you're teaching five lessons, you, you plan these five chunks. And more often than not, we overplan. And we've got all these bits of work that we want children to complete and so on. Whereas if we plan for a sequence, we don't think, right, they've got to get through this in this session and then they've got to move on and get through this. And you can actually end up, if you plan a sequence rather than these individual lessons, you can plan fewer things, yeah. but that can be done in a sequence. So a child, for example, will complete that task, but it might take over two timetabled chunks <laughs> as opposed to lessons, yeah. sessions, whatever you want to call them. Whereas before you might have just stopped them from learning, stopped them from completing, let's say Monday's mm. activity. And then on Tuesday, you start them off on a brand new thing, yeah, which is not good for the child because they might not have done everything they needed to have done to ready themselves for Tuesday session. 
And it means that you've planned more work than you needed mm. to plan because that child actually needed two days on the one piece of work. So I think planning in, in a sequence means that you don't have to think of as many different activities. The other thing it does, it means that you don't have to differentiate as much. So you don't need that three-way, mm. five-way differentiation because what you do is you support and scaffold mm the children through that sequence so you might have child a who's made their way through that sequence a little bit further than another child but you know i don't have to plan anything more for that child because it's all there the next part of the sequence is there and tomorrow they'll move on and then for the other child you know right well they're still working on that i need to adapt i need to respond but i've kind of planned already for that response because I know that this is the next step in the sequence. Right. So planning for a sequence is all about breaking your learning objective down into a step-by-step step mm. approach to learning. It doesn't sound that dissimilar from what we do, but it is a slight tweak in the way of thinking about planning for learning. Yeah, thanks, Aidan. Some of the things you were talking about there reminded me of an interview we did with a chap called Carl Honoré. The slow guy. Yeah, the slow guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've read his book. It's good. Yeah, he's interesting. And he talked about the curriculum and he talked about the comparison of um, the kind of fast food version of a school curriculum versus yeah. the kind of, yeah, I think he called it the breakfast buffet, didn't he, Steve? Yeah. Approach. Yeah. And I think a lot of our curriculum work can feel like that when you're talking about these five or six lessons like quickly you know we've got an hour block let's grab as much knowledge and content as we can absorb it bit of retrieval practice at the next lesson on we go and i think what you're talking about there is actually don't put so much in the first place give yourself a little bit more room to you know why should the same content always take an hour it might yeah. be i need an hour and 45 minutes on this particular objective yeah. but this bit of of the next stage of the sequence of the journey might take 20 minutes and that is a really hard thing for teachers to break out of that mold because I can logically get that so profoundly deeply, but my brain still compartmentalizes my, my week into hours and my term into yeah. six lessons. That's a real, uh, a real kind of changing in working, isn't it? Yeah. And that's why one of the things that I think helps support this is when you come to your planning session, get all the logistics out of the way first, get the fact that you're off on a trip, get the fact mm -hmm. that so-and-so is coming in to do an extra assembly at this time, get the fact that one group of kids is going off fishing for the morning, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, all these things that kind of disrupt the week. If you can talk about the logistics first, then I think it frees you up because you've done the talk about the hour chunks and, and what the timetable looks like. And then you can just think, right, well, what does the learning need to look like over that? week and i think the other thing with planning for sequences that does help with workload as well is that the lessons aren't necessarily an hour long the sequence isn't necessarily a week long you can plan a sequence of learning especially for something like uh, science or history where you might not be doing it every day of the week mm. you can plan a sequence of those which lasts for three weeks mm. for example which means that you have to then do very little planning for that over the next couple of PPA sessions and you can turn your attention to something else and you kind of got three weeks worth of planning in the bag because you planned this whole sequence already. 
Do you know, it's funny, even today I was planning, I do PPA in year six and each term they maybe pick a different thing, like afternoon thing they'd like me to support with the planning for. And it's French this term, which is just hilarious because it's so out of my comfort zone. But <laughs> I see what you mean, actually, because I've sat down today and tried to map out a sequence of a journey through through that unit. And I found it much more useful to get the bulk of that done in one go. And I'll probably come back to it in a few weeks, but I've got my next few sessions. I'm going to call them sessions rather than lessons because yeah, yeah. I take your point. <laughs> I'm kind of lined up now because I've thought about that as one journey. And I think yeah. the other benefit of what you're talking about is you're going to end up with a sequence of sessions that are much more coherent and joined together, which in wider curriculum work perhaps hasn't yeah. always been there in primary schools. We've ended up with very... Uh, pick a mix diet of let's let's find six interesting things i can learn about the romans rather than yeah. a sequence that explores one kind of idea so i think again in terms of workload the example you've just given with your french lessons if the class absolutely smashed the way through one of your sessions or the first part of your sequence you're planned and ready yeah you know after half an hour if it's all gone swimmingly you can just swiftly move on to the next section mm. you've got it all there planned and ready there's no panic there's no get your reading books out or whatever yeah and the other thing is it's going to be a much better learning experience like you say mm. if you've got it all mapped out yeah because i think the temptation like you say can often be right we've just got to get one lesson of science this week mm. planned, one lesson of history or geography or whatever it is and yeah, it's taken from a long-term plan, most probably, and it might have been <laughs> yeah. medium-term planned, but it's still, in those kind of ways of planning, can be quite disjointed. Mm. So getting a sequence is all about that smooth move from one session to the next, from one objective to the next. Okay, so I 100% agree with everything you're saying about sequence and seeing it in that way, but ultimately we do end up breaking it very often down to a 45 minute to an hour session in our day and we do that for all curriculum areas do you have any tips about structures of lessons or things you found particularly worked i know you've blogged a bit on a structure of a, a lesson or a session what that might look like yeah i think it depends on the lesson obviously but i think there's also some general principles that we can apply the rosenshine principles are really useful as a go-to kind of not necessarily a checklist, I generally shy away from checklisty type things, yeah. but as a reference point, I suppose, to what we might need to put into this lesson. I think, as you've mentioned already, we, we need that review of previous work. We need to be ready to build on that. I always kind of imagine a Lego brick wall. You've got a baseboard and that's what you're building on. And what are the previous bricks that have been laid down? How are you going to fit your next ones onto that? So that needs to be thought about in the planning phase. And then the review at the beginning of the lesson kind of leads you into, here's what you did before, here's what we do next. And the, the kind of thinking around that that's coming out of the cognitive science view of learning is that we're building schema, mm. we're creating these neural pathways that we revisit over and over again, and that strengthens them. And then there's that concept of retrieval practice as well, strengthening what we keep in our memories. So yeah, I'd definitely be putting that in a lesson. Again, it might not even be at the beginning though. It could be interspersed throughout. It might be a responsive thing where you realise, hang on, I'm not sure they've remembered this thing from a previous session or a previous term or a previous year. Then I think the next most important thing, and again, I feel like so much of what I say and write about is obvious and common sense 
But then time and time again, you see these things kind of missing from lessons. Yeah. So you obviously need to have your teacher-led part of the lesson. It will depend on what your pedagogy is or the pedagogy of your school. But something which is teacher-led, something that nearly always involves explanation and modelling. But I feel like the modelling is the thing that sometimes gets cut from a lesson. Definitely. And I've done it myself. Everything I say is based on me and my own experiences, first and foremost, and me being honest about my own practice where I've kind of waffled on about something for so long that I'm like, oh, no, the children need to do something now. They need to practice something. I've got all these activities, you know, printed out and ready to go. So let's just move them on to that. And then five minutes in, you're like, oh, everybody stop. Mm. Nobody gets this. And you're back to the drawing board. Then you think, yeah, I better model this to them. I better show them exactly what I want. And I think we have to think carefully about modeling as well, because there's different aspects to it. You can kind of split it into two main things. One is modeling the content. And then the other one is the kind of procedural content of, actually, I want you to set it out like this. And in your book, it's going to look like this. Often, you know, if we're modeling writing, we're doing it in massive letters on a whiteboard and then we expect them to set it all out how we want it, how we've imagined it in our heads. And that's why I think things like visualizers and teachers having their own workbook that goes under the visualizer so Mm -hmm. that they can see what the set out is, how to lay things out. I've been guilty so many times of scribbling up a, a bit of maths on the board and then expecting them to set it out one digit per box, (laughs) neat ruler lines and all of that. I'm not using a ruler line. It doesn't model to them everything about what I'm expecting them to do. And I think the other thing is moving on from the modeling then to the actual activities that you choose for children. And I see this one go downhill and I've taken it downhill myself as well is where the activities that you've picked don't actually end up matching to what you've just explained and what you've just modeled. (laughs) You might have like the first two questions that kind of match what you were modeling. And then the rest of them are just like nothing that the children have experienced before. Can I just say a teacher workbook is an amazing idea. I use it for a good few years, even with my year sixes. You say, right, under a visualizer, put your own work on there and show the expectations and show them how to paragraph properly rather than just typing it onto a smart notebook file where you're not actually demonstrating the, yeah. the writing process as such. Yeah. It's such a powerful tool. And you know, I'm a firm advocate of that. Aiden, we were also perusing your old blogs recently. <laughs> and even we went back to the 2016 blog called Reach for the Cheese Slicer. Uh, what a title. A title <laughs> that I love particularly because I love any cheese joke and cheese pun. So I'm loving that already. <laughs> in it, you were talking about the importance of teachers being willing to adapt their working habits in order to make the job more manageable. Can you tell us more about this idea and give us any examples of where you yourself need to do this as a teacher? Yeah, I can't believe you found that. I had kind of <laughs> forgotten that it existed. Although when I mentioned to my wife that you dug it up, she was like, oh, yeah, I think about that one all the time. And the reason why she thinks about that all the time is because she loves a cheese slicer and she was always <laughs> trying to get me to use it. And I was very reticent. I mean, I didn't really realise that a person could have a preferred cheese cutting implement, but <laughs> turns out that I do. I like the one with the big, deep bit of knife to give a a good chop um 
so I, I did. I went back to read it to see what I was saying. I actually still agree with 2016 me, <laughs> although I was in a very different place then to, I guess, where I got to subsequently in terms of my leadership responsibilities. I was still doing full-time class teaching. And back then I had this real emphasis in my head on what you can do as a teacher. Mm. And that's what that was all about. And quite a lot of my writing at the time was about what teachers can do themselves. And I think before we answer a question about what teachers can do, we have to first point the finger at the leaders and leaders of schools and, and the system leaders as well. We cannot solve the workload crisis by just giving teachers some tips Mm. as to what they can do because if we're piling too much on them as leaders then no amount of workload advice is going to make a blind bit of difference if we still have policies that require you know x amounts of written marking even going back to that triple or dialogic marking kind of thing madness that went on and probably still does Mm -hmm. if i'm honest you know we need to remove those requirements from teachers as leaders leaders need to be prioritizing what makes a difference so first and foremost i have to say that before going into this kind of little preachy bit about well as a teacher you can do x y and z and if you're not doing that then you know you're not doing it right i think in at that time i remember the head or it might have been the deputy head sending another member of staff to me for advice her kind of line was well Aidan's got family he's got little kids at home and he manages his workload well so why don't you go and speak to him and I was happy to do that and hopefully what I was able to share did make a difference so the sorts of things I said then were around take for example marking my marking practice was really impacted by the deputy head at the school, or she might have even been the assistant at the time, the school where I asked to go into year six. So I asked to go into year six. Come September, October, I'm knocking on her door saying, how do you manage all this? Because they write like five pages and there's 30 of them. And I just can't keep up with the marking. And she said something really simple. And, and since I think this has become a lot more popular, but at the time it wasn't. She said, mark as much as you can within a lesson. And that was a bit of a revelation to me because previously I thought in a lesson, you had to sit at a desk with a group of children all the way through and you only worked with them and the work with them was all to do I suppose a shared approach to working so as a teacher I was very heavily involved in doing that and then the other thing she said comes back to the planning phase again she said well if you know that on Thursday night you can't do any marking because you've got some life stuff going on then don't plan to do writing on Thursday choose a different outcome so she said to me it's not all about getting working books the whole time what outcomes are there that are not going to give you a whole load of marking so it was actually planning when you were going to mark Mm. and planning what activities you would need to mark I also, and, and this is not everyone's cup of tea, and the, the whole thing with well-being is that there is no one thing that is going to work for everybody. The key thing is 
is to believe that there are ways that work for you yeah and to think right i need to find out what the efficient ways of doing things are that work for me so we can't just say to everyone oh you shouldn't take work home you should stay at school until you've got it done some people might need to get home and it might be better for them to work later on in the evening if they've got things to do going back to the fact that i had a young family and and still do I had other responsibilities. I couldn't, I literally couldn't be marking Mm. at home. It would have been an absolute nightmare. So for me, I had to find a way that I could do that not at home. And I guess one of the ways I did that could be seen as a bit antisocial because I chose to use my lunch times and break times to do that sort of working. Other people for their well-being are going to need that connection in the staff room that 15 minutes with a brew rather than just plowing on with the work. Uh, But for me, it was my preferred way of kind of managing my time. So I think it's more a bit of generic advice that believe that you can find a way and find the way that works for you. And then I think the third thing, and I'll leave it at that, is about seeking support. I think so often, although there's thousands and thousands of teachers in the UK we can often feel quite alone and we don't always reach out for the support we need I think Twitter's really good for this for those teachers who are on there because there is a environment of support and Facebook as well provides that where people can reach out but for me I've always liked that assistant head that I talked about I've always found the right colleagues that I work with to ask the information that I need to know, finding the old hands, the experts, the more experienced ones, the ones who've seen it all come and go and come again, because they're the ones who get out the door on time. They're the ones who come back and tell you about all these things they've been doing, about all the hobbies and interests and stuff. Yeah. And and they've obviously got it sussed. So speak to them, find out what works for them. And the, the good thing about doing that with colleagues in your own school is that they will have found ways that work in that context. Nice. There seems to be so much sort of sage advice there, Aidan. You've mm-hmm. made me think about various things that I just wanted to uh, to pick up on. One there that you were talking about in terms of um, having that young family, I really relate to that. I had my started my family quite young and Steve and I have often compared notes on this. He was saying before the podcast, weren't you, Steve, that at the start of your career, you were living with your parents who would, you know, be helping with the meals and things. So actually you fell in some really dreadful working habits that weren't sustainable later on once you had your family or once you had more other things going on in in your life where, like Aidan, I kind of hit this point. I was like, I can't. I actually need to stop now. I can't do a massive pile of books at home like that. Has yeah, there's bath time. Yeah, bath time songs to sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, books to read. So that was a <laughs> that was a that really made me think. And I was thinking back to that phase of my career, right? My first job actually, and I had a colleague called Ellie who was absolutely amazing. And she was that teacher you were talking about that just seemed to have it sussed. And it wasn't that she didn't work hard. My gosh, she worked hard. But you know, when we had PPA day together, she cracked the whip. She yeah, was like Russell. Yeah down those stairs come on we got to get sorted and i'd yeah. be like oh 
let me just chat to someone. <laughs> just, and, you know, all those things are important. You're right. You know, for some people, that connection, getting in the staff room, so on. And there must always be some room for that in our profession. Yeah. But God, she helped me to just get my head yeah. down, get the job done. She'd be like, these are the three things we need to do today. And be like, whoa, okay. And I needed that. I still need that yeah. in, in my life. I need some structure. I need some deadlines. Or I'll fill the space yeah. with other things if I can. I think we're we're all guilty of that so then when i went to work with steve i kind of did that to you didn't i steve <laughs> when we were assistant yes. heads leadership day steve blinkers on no chatting to kids because he loved talking to everybody get down to that office now <laughs> remember those days steve remember them well and i know we had a, a partner in crime with us another middle leader and she was very good at cracking the whip as well yeah. Russell, wasn't she? yeah so, we needed that as a, as a trio yeah. we worked incredibly well because there was this sternness to what we were doing and not wasting a minute and yeah. every every yeah. second counted in that day then didn't it yeah and that for me that was my nqt partner mm. she's ahead now somewhere in the midlands doing amazing things she's called kate and yeah ppa was just insanely productive by the end of it we had everything printed out filed by day and all of that sort of stuff and i loved it i actually loved the fact that we had everything done back then. Me and my wife were, she was in Birmingham. I was up in Bradford. So we'd try and see each other at the weekends. It was before we were married. Uh, she was at uni. And I just wanted to get in that car on Friday and get down mm. to Birmingham and not think about Monday morning. And Kate made sure that that happened, mm. you know. And I think that 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 ethic, that work ethic has stuck with me. I think I do work hard. Mm. I have worked hard, but I have also been out the door at the time that I need to be out the door at. And something else that's coming out in your answer there is is about self-awareness and knowing yourself, knowing when you are productive, knowing when you're not. You know, for me, yeah, I'm an early morning guy. So when I was class-based, if I was in at seven, I actually got loads of my marketing things done then. And yeah, yeah. Where actually end of the day, awful. I'm shot. I'm out of it. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm grumpy. Yeah, I can yeah. do the kind of routine stuff like any photocopying and, and resource making for the next day. Marking books, interrogating work, really find that hard in the evenings. Just not not at all with it. Yeah. But get me in early in the day. I can think sharp. I can be efficient. Yeah. I can plow through loads. But for another person, it's the opposite, yeah. isn't it? Someone else comes awake at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night, like you say, with a cup yeah. of tea and I think you were right. And I just want to pick up on your point about leaders' decisions underpinning all of this. We do need to be self-aware as teachers. We do need to know when we're productive. We do need to pick yeah. up tips from our more experienced colleagues. And I think we do need to hear that advice because that's all really sound and be willing to work in different ways and reach for the cheese slicer. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> yeah. If if our leaders aren't helping us along with that, then it's uh, yeah, it's always going to be like an uphill battle, really, isn't it, with workload? Can I just pick up on one more thing? And th this is where... This is as harsh as I'll go on teachers. And it's just to say, be honest with yourself as well, because mm. I've had so many encounters where I've spoken to teachers who, for example, they basically try and multitask and it ends up with neither of the things they're doing mm. done well. So you can either watch your TV show and understand <laughs> what's going on or do your marking and get it done with. I think if you try and do both at the same time, Neither gets done as well. Yeah. It takes longer. Whereas if you'd have just done one, then the next, it might not have taken as long altogether. So I just think, yeah, be honest with yourself as to what is actually working and what, what you think makes you feel better. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And I think that brings us nicely to our last focus, which is the 
role of assessment in schools. Now, Russell and I have both led on assessment over the years, and I'm a self-confessed data geek, so I, I love data and assessment. But it has been a fascinating watch as to how the profession still wrestles with its purpose and its benefits to teachers. Just wondering what advice do you have to teachers and leaders about how we use data effectively and its purpose? Yeah, and I think data is one of those things that alongside things like marking and feedback would come up as a main culprit mm. yeah. for, yeah, for poor teacher well-being and the, the increase of workload. Mm. Those weeks of the year when it's the data drop and it's quite often, you know, you've just done your assessment week as well. And then the next week it's going to be parents evening because that whole thing kind of flows together. And you know that three times a year, maybe twice a year, you've got that whole kind of three weeks coming up and it's just tiring, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because you, you're setting the tests, you're marking the tests, you're inputting the data, you're doing all that analysis probably far too much analysis that needs to be done. Yeah. I think we get very confused sometimes between what's summative assessment and what's formative. And we kind of want to dig down into those answers from the test. And we kind of want to find out more about what it is they couldn't do. Before I left, I did a lot of work that was responsive to the year six children and, and how well they'd done in a particular test I planned it all out, did all these different sessions with different kids in, and I brought them out. And some of them, they could do it straight away. It wasn't because they couldn't do it when they got it wrong on the test. It was something else. It was the day, it was the test. They were rushing or they misread it or whatever. So it doesn't tell you everything. I think that's the first thing that you need to remember. And that that goes for anything that we do in schools that's under the umbrella of monitoring and evaluation, that any one thing we do is not going to tell us everything and that it's only one piece of the puzzle and that any one thing that we think we've found out from one of those exercises needs to be tested by several others of those things and it's the same for data if we have set a task that's meant to be formative just I suppose to take it with a pinch of salt to make sure that it matches up to what else you've seen going on in the classroom and that it does what it's supposed to do, which is to inform your future teaching and that it wasn't actually a summative assessment that you just kind of get really stressed about because they've not learned X, Y, and Z. In the past, at least, and probably still in places, there's still that obsession with the tick lists and the check Mm. sheets and the objectives and all of that, which is great if you need to keep a record because you you've not got the memory to remember what 30 different children are doing but i think we can get ruled by it and we can it can start ballooning out into all these other things so pupil progress meetings and everything everything all the stress that comes mm. with that again it's it's just one piece of the puzzle it's not necessarily everything i think there's one of the kind of current discussions we feel like we've got our maths English stuff down, mainly because we've got tests from whichever publisher you you choose to to buy them from. And then we've got the SATS ones for year six and so on. There's this conversation going on about how we assess the wider curriculum and people have got all sorts of ideas about it. But I think what we need to get back to is the simplicity of we've got our intended curriculum what we wanted to teach and hopefully that's all planned and in place because if it's not 
forget assessing it because mm. you're just assessing basically whatever teachers fancy teaching yeah. um i think again going back to the planning phase and making sure that everything's there in the first place makes it a lot easier to assess it when it's all been done and delivered mm. but i think yeah asking have the children learned this it's again it sounds really basic and really simple and it sounds obvious but i don't think we think like that mm. that much with the wider curriculum i think we're like oh well, how can I give them a test and how can I assess this outcome and how can I record that and how can I come out with percentages of this, that and the other? Whereas actually it's talking to the kids, it's looking at their work, it's bringing those two things together and getting a sense of whether or not that thing has been learned. And hopefully at the formative stage rather than the summative stage, because you want to be able to do something about it if they haven't. And I mean, this might sound a bit bold and it's all very well me saying it now. I'm not in a school, but if an Ofsted inspector wanted to know whether the children in my school had learned something or not, then I would say go and ask them yeah. and see what you think of their answers. Well, and you just brought me to a point. I think we've got a legacy effect of um, Ofsted actually where leaders used to try and prove their impact by reeling off percentages mm. of how many kids were expected in yeah. groups and uh, it's extremely clear and has been in report after report after report and in the Ofsted framework they do not ask for internal data anymore and it's mm. been funny because my school got an RI judgment 2018 so before the framework changed and I know yeah. leaders were asked for loads of data yeah, and figures and my, my poor colleagues now even now I'm sort of having to wean them off feeling that they need to know every yeah. percent of every key group in every year group yeah. and actually do we know now that we're delivering a really good curriculum are we talking to children as you say all the time about their learning and yeah. know that and of course the answer is yes we've put all our energies in the right place but there's mm. still that little bit of insecurity of what if we're yeah. asked about what do i need to yeah. know this this percent and i just want to really say to people it couldn't be clearer that they're not asking for that stuff and yeah. i agree with aiden completely there that talking to your pupils regularly i mean of course having a clear curriculum in the first place to uh, to assess anyway but is your curriculum pitched at the right level are kids getting it mm. We know they're getting it because they can talk really confidently about yeah. it. They're passionate about it. They can link ideas together. So we spend most of our monitoring time just chatting to kids now, and it is so much more illuminating than anything we've done in the past. <laughs> they're the ones who've been doing the learning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. they just can't fudge it. They either know it or they don't. Yeah. Look, Aiden, it's been a real joy chatting to you, and I feel like you've given people lots to think about, and you've been very balanced in your uh, approach you about efficient and effective teaching both looking at the things the teachers are responsible for or can take some uh, sort of agency over but also the things that leaders really need to step up and and do for their staff so I hope whether you're a, a teacher or a leader there's been bits that have landed for you in today's episode and we wish you all the best uh, in your new little journey Aidan if people uh, like what you're about and they do want to get in touch with you how can they do that well I'm on Twitter and that's just my name, Aidan Severs. It's Aidan with an A, A-I-D-A-N. Uh, lots of people get that wrong and I try <laughs> not to hold it against them. <laughs> I've got a website and that's just AidanSevers.com. If you search my name, I'm like the only person called Aidan Severs in the world, I think. <laughs> so yeah, if you find me anywhere on the internet or find my name, it'll be me. I'd love to hear some thoughts some experiences 
and yeah twitter's probably the best way to get them across to me if you're if you're on there but i do have a facebook page as well which surprise surprise is facebook.com slash aiden severs yeah <laughs> so yeah love to hear from some of your listeners yeah please reach out let us know yeah. what you thought of it that'd be great thanks aiden no worries it's been great thank you for having me the dynamic deputy mm-hmm.